0: The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church.
1: Good morning, Story City Church. My name is Rahab. Please stand for God's Word. Uh, Today's scripture reading uh, will be from Isa, verses 1 through 7. Bears of the Prince of Peace. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when the humble, the land of Zabalon and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned, on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice as harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulder, the staff on their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trembling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and his prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom. They establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. Uh, this seal of the Lord of Armies will accomplish this. I read it in Farsi. Esmau Ajib Kahatbud. اما این تاریکی برای قوم خدا که دلتن تنگی هستند تا ابد باقی نخواهند ماند. خدا سرزمین قبایل زبولان و نفتالی را در گذشته خار و ذلیل ساخته بود. اما در آینده او تمام این سرزمین را از دریای مدیترانه گرفته تا آن طرف اردان و حتی تا خود جلیل که بیگانگان در آن زندگی می کنند، مورد احترام قرار خواهد داد. قومی که در تاریکی راه می‌رفتند، نور عظیمی خواهند دید. بر کسانی که در سرزمین ظلمت زندگی می کردند روشنایی خواهند تابید ای خداوند تو خوشی قوم خود را افسودی و به ایشان شادمانی بخشیدی آنها همچون کسانی که با شادی محصول را درون می کنند و مانند آنانی که با خوشحالی قرام را بین خود تقسیم می نمایند در حضور تو شادمانی می کنند زیرا تو یوقی را که برگردن آنها بود شکستی و ایشان را از دست قوم تجاوزگر ر همان چنان که در گذشته میدیانی ها را شکست داده قومت را آزاد ساختی تمام اصلاعی ها و لباس های جنگی که به خون آقشتند خواهند سوخت و از بین خواهند رفت زیرا فرزندی برای ما به دنیا آمده پسری ما بخشیده شده او بر ما سلطنت خواهد نمود نام او عجیب، مشیر، خدای قدیر و پدر جافدانی و سرور سلامتی خواهد بود او بر تخت پادشاهی داوود خواهد نشست و بر سرزمین او تا ابد سلطنت خواهد کرد پایه حکومتش را بر عد و انصاف استوار ساخت و گسترش فرمانروایی صلح پرور او را انتهایی نخواهد بود خداوند قادر متعال چنین اراده فرمود و این را انجام خواهد داد This is the words of the Lord.
0: Thanks be Right on. So, fam, how are you guys doing this morning? Somebody's awake in the back. Nobody in this section, but that's totally okay. We are so excited you're here. Welcome to the Burbank location of Story City Church. My name is Jared. I have the honor of being one of the pastors here. And we exist as a church to glorify God by leading communities into healthy relationships with God and people. Each of us here has a story, and that story matters. As we build community, we not only learn how to apprentice, uh, uh, how to appreciate other people's stories, but we learn how to walk with each other. As we discover how our stories are connected to both God and each other, we we have some values here that talk about who we are as a church, and those are connected to each of our stories. And so we would say that our story is God's story. What do I mean by that? I mean that we are not here for ourselves. The Bible isn't actually about us. That we are a part of something God is doing in the city of L.A. You are not here by accident. You are here because God brought you here. And your story has a part to play in what God is doing in the people around you. We would say that no one uh, is too bad or too mad or too far from God to matter to him or to us. That every twist and turn of your story has value to God and to us. Our second value is that we are real and redeemed. What does that mean? It means that we recognize that they are going to suffer. The Bible promised it. It doesn't mean you did something wrong. It means that we are going to be challenged and stretched and grown. The Bible says that grows us. It creates perseverance and faith. And so the truth is that we also live in a broken world full of sinful people, including us. That means that people are going to sin against us and we're going to sin. And it leads to brokenness in us. And so we want to balance that faith and that failure, understanding that even our failures have a part to play in the development of our faith. And those of us who have been wounded, we understand that our limp enriches our legacy, that your limp isn't something you have to hide or, or try to pretend isn't there, but it's a part of your story that God wants to use as he redeems the people around you. And lastly, we say that we serve the neighborhoods we call home, and we have this commitment that we're going to live in and learn from the cities we hope to impact, and that we will be more generous to our neighbors than they are to us. And so... This is who we are. This is uh, the summation, kind of the way that we frame it and say, this is who we're trying to be as an organization. As we talked about before, the church isn't like some nebulous organization. It's us, it's us gathered together. We are the church family. And so, this is what we're saying we hope to be as a group of people. As a group of people. I'm excited you guys are here. There's a trying time for pastors, and it's around Christmas and Easter. And it's because every year Jesus is born. And every year Jesus, is di- Jesus dies and it's like, okay, how do I say this again in a way that helps us to understand it, right? Because the truth is still the truth, but some of you, the longer you've been Christian, some of you have heard this like 40 sermons, you've heard this 50 sermons, maybe one of you in heard it here has heard it over 60 times, I don't know, I'm just saying possibly most of us have not heard it that many times, but either way... It's different, so we're trying to figure out how do we continue to make this interesting but still present the truth of the gospel. Well, the beauty is, is that God's word is so filled with life and hope and truth that there's so many layers to it, we can pull it out, and it still speaks relevantly to us each and every time. So even if you feel like you've heard a Christmas sermon before, bear with me. Uh, we're going to get through this. We are going to be talking about the presence that really matters, the presence of Jesus. See what he did there? Yeah, that's right. Oh no, it gets worse, I promise. We're starting today, we're we'll going the next three weeks, and then on Christmas Eve, we're going to wrap it all up. <laughs> or unwrap it, I'm not sure which one it is, but um, you know, we'll, we'll get there. Look, uh, I, I want to take a moment though. For some of us, the holidays are filled with joy, it's a beautiful time, it's like valid reason for, for all you guys to go watch all the Hallmark movies, I know, I know you guys been doing it, um, but for some of us, it's a difficult time too. For me personally, it's a mixed bag. Uh, this month, I get to celebrate my 26th wedding anniversary, which is awesome. Well, you should be clapping for her, but yes. Uh, but it's also 25 years since my dad passed away. And so those are always things that, that are kind of, it's a moment of great joy and a moment of sadness. And so I just want to acknowledge that this season can be a lot to handle. Some of you have difficult families. Some of you have difficult situations. Some of you have faced loss during this time. One of my Close friends, uh, his wife. She was forty-two years old. She passed away Christmas Eve, and so this will be one of those seasons for him, just him and his daughter, where they will be struggling through this season. And so, let's remember that while this is a season of great hope, that hope is something that is necessary when you need hope. It reminds us that we are in the darkness, and and that brings me to a good point: is that one of the problems I have with Christmas is that I end up trivializing it as just a nice, sweet time that's kind of fun and we give each other gifts and there's kind of, there's kind of this, this thing. But, but I, I get caught up in the busyness of the season. Anybody else get caught up in the busyness of the season? Three of us. Okay, it's okay to raise your hand in church, folks. It's not going to kill you. No one's going to get hurt. All right? No one's like, seat four, he raises his hand that means he's going to give extra tithe this week. It's good. <laughs> We're all right. But Christmas becomes almost like one more gift that, that, that I've been given and it becomes something like, yeah, yeah yeah, okay, I get it. And I almost feel like we end up as the kids playing with the box instead of the toy. So let's take the time we have together for just a moment. Let's refocus. Let's not gloss over the fact this is a Christmas message. Let's not just let it go past us, but let's stop and think about what this really means. And we're gonna be looking at Christmas past. And, 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 and I want us to like remember that God has had a plan. You are not an accident. God has had a plan. All along, he has designed this and you are a part of something God has been doing and it's from eons ago. So let's stop and pray and then we'll get to the book of Isaiah. Father, you are incredible. You are wonderful. You are gracious. You are good. No one can stand in your presence and yet you invite all of us to be your children. God, it's overwhelming that that. The acceptance, the love, the forgiveness isn't based on our ability to perform. It's not based on our own goodness, thank God. It's based on your goodness, on who you are and what you've done and who that makes us. God, we are so grateful for the areas that we're not. We ask that you would help us to be. Father, for all the churches that are working hard to proclaim your name this morning, we thank you. We thank you for the churches that are working so hard this morning. Thank you for... God, thank you for Emmanuel. Thank you for First Pres. Thank you for Calvary Bible. Thank you for Media City. Thank you for South Hills. Thank you for City Light. God, thank you for the pastors who are sacrificing this morning and doing their best to, Lord, bring your word faithfully to your people. Lord, we know that we're all churches that are broken, that we're churches that are sinful and And yet you are not. You are good. And so we thank you that you reign supreme. And in this season, I ask that you would allow us not to get in the way, to be a distraction of your light, of what you are, that you would be glorified and lifted up in the city of Burbank, the city of Granada Hills, the city of Los Angeles, Southern California. We pray that you would be glorified in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're going to hit briefly in uh, chapter 7 of Isaiah this morning. We're going to spend the majority of our time in chapter 9 and then a couple moments in chapters 52 and 53. But for those taking notes today, the big idea for us is this. That God in the flesh is the promised plan for restoration. That God in the flesh is the promised plan for for restoration, God has always had a plan. You're going to see how the whole book of Isaiah is, is one long book. We didn't divide it, it wasn't written in chapters and verses. In fact, uh, Jesus stands up and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah. He's got to unroll it and get to the part that he wants to, to read. And so, this, the Isaiah story is one long letter that is speaking directly to the situation that Israel has gotten itself into. And it's prophesying or foretelling of the consequences that are coming for their actions. But we're also going to see that God has had a plan, actually since Genesis, for the rescue and renewal of his people. And he is going to step in and bring rescue. He's going to promise that here in the book of Isaiah. And so we see the birth of the promise in chapter 7. We see the who in chapter 9. And we see the how in chapters 52 and 53. So let's go back to our scripture today. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. It says this. Nevertheless... The gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to the Galilee, to Galilee of the nations. He's describing regions that we don't really know. Uh, I mean, most of you don't have this memorized, but but he's he's starting in one area and he's expanding out into the known kind of Middle Eastern world right there. And so what he's describing is, it's almost like you've heard the term Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. He's doing the same thing. He's saying that this is going to be for, this news is for, not just the people by the way of the sea, right? Israel's on the coast, but it's going to keep going out. And he talks about crossing the, Gordon, the Jordan and even up into Galilee. And Galilee, because it's along the Roman road, eventually, now Rome wasn't around in Isaiah's time, but, uh, but eventually the Roman road goes right through Galilee. And so it was one of the areas that all the nations were actually gathered. In fact, it's the reason the Pharisees were there, particularly because they were fighting the Hellenization or the Greek influence and the Romanization that is impacting the Jewish culture there. And it's so mixed of an area that it's kind of the front lines of what's happening in this battle for culture between Israel people and the Hellenization and Romanization of the time. And so his promise is already addressing those areas. And this is the promise. The promise is that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. And then he promises, You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have, this is why, you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did in the day of Midian. For For every trampling boot of battle and the bloody garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child, this is the who, will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over its kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Now, a little background. Isaiah's writing during this time of great upheaval, great struggle. The people of Israel went from Moses and then they ended up in Joshua and then the judges that led them. And judges is basically a, a cycle that just goes over and over of the people failing God and then finally realizing, okay, we, we've messed up. We tried to leave God and try to do it on our own. This didn't work. God, we cry out to you. God would send a judge or a military rescuer who would overthrow whatever oppressor was on them. They would come back, their hearts would come back for a couple of years. And then same thing, they go right back into, you know, worshiping these other gods or, or, or disobeying God himself. And it just kept going. This goes all the way through to the kings. And so they go back and forth between obedience and disobedience, um, mostly disobedience, though, uh, through the time of the kings. Now, there's this king named David. He's the most famous king. He loves God. He is a, a broken, broken man. But he, his heart is to go, I'm leading my people to follow God. He has a son named Solomon. Some of you have heard of King Solomon, uh, the wisest king on earth. He's, he's the guy that asked God. God says, what do you, whatever you want. You want a long life? You want riches? What do you want? He's like, I just need to learn how to lead your people. And so God blesses them with wisdom and says, I'll give you also all the stuff you didn't ask for. And so they go to that. But his son is so unwise and, and not the guy that his dad was that he actually ends up, his behavior splits the kingdom. And the kingdom ends up into two, Israel and Judah. And uh, Judah ends up kind of more often following God than not. Israel ends up pretty wicked. And so these two nations end up at war a lot. They end up at war with other nations around them. But God keeps giving them this warning over and over and over again. If you don't follow me, guess what's going to happen? The same thing that's been happening to you this entire time. I'm gonna let other nations come in and take you over. You're gonna be exiled from your homeland and that's gonna be the end of it unless you follow me. But in the middle of that, he continues to say, but you know what? I'm still going to love you. I'm still going to be your God, and I will still restore and redeem you like I always do. And so God is telling them, the men of Israel and Judah, the people of the nations, that time is up, and God's going to bring the full punishment he's been promised. He's like, I've waited long enough. It's time. You're going to get invaded. Here is what's coming. Now, we see the prophet, in case you're wondering, uh, after Isaiah, there's a prophet, Jeremiah, Jeremiah. So Isaiah is prophesying all this stuff is going to happen, and he kind of leads right up to it. Jeremiah is the prophet that experiences it. And so he writes Jeremiah of this warning as it's happening. And then he actually writes the book of Lamentations, the book of Lament, because it has happened. And so if you're wondering how this all kind of fits in, this is where it's at. Now, um, he's, Isaiah is writing 700 years prior to the birth of Jesus. So again, everything you see here is him prophesying this is what's going to happen, what God is going to do. Now, as of this writing, in chapter 7, the king of Judah, King Ahaz, is a godly king attempting to serve Yahweh. Um, He hasn't torn down all the high places, so he's kind of mostly doing the best he can to follow God. But he hasn't completely eradicated the worship of other gods in the area. And the king of Israel and another king in the area, they join forces. And they're trying to stand against the king of Assyria, who is about to come in and conquer their areas. In fact, it happens during the writing Of Isaiah, And so the king of Judah is going, well, what do I do? Do I join with these other two kings and try to stand against this massive army coming down? Um, Do I try and pay tribute? And so he decides he's going to pay tribute to the king of Assyria to keep him from attacking him. But that makes him enemies with the king of Israel and the other king that he's joined forces with. And so he ends up in battle with all three. And eventually Assyria comes in and takes over anything anyway. But in this moment, he's wrestling through all this political intrigue. What is the right answer? How do I protect my people? What is the deal? And he's going to commit Israel to this massive payment to this large king. And it's in this moment that Isaiah comes to King Ahaz and he says, hey, I've got a question for you. The question is, who is your savior? Is it Assyria to save you from the king of Israel and this other king? Or is it Yahweh? Where is your hope lie? Where does your hope lie? And Ahaz makes the choice ultimately to... Trust in the king of Assyria, which seals the end for both of the nations. But Isaiah is essentially saying, look, it's going to look bleak, but God has always had a plan to rescue and renew his creation. He's been promising this since Genesis. And so it may look bleak, but God is our rescuer. He is the one that is going to restore all things, not just for now, but forever. And so God in the midst of that gives him this promise. And it's super interesting. He starts with... This promise in Isaiah 7:14. So jump back a couple chapters with me. Isaiah 7:14. This is the promise that he gives to King Ahaz that things are going to be all right. He says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, I know this is really hard to wrap our minds around, but a virgin birth was just as weird and strange then as it is now. <laughs> Virgins did not go around having kids any more then than they did now. So this was just as weird of a prophecy and just as strange of a thing to understand. And then again, it also didn't happen for another 700 years. And so this is a moment that's like, wait, what are you talking about? But God is clearly giving a future hope in this passage, even though he's not immediately addressing the rescue from trouble that Ahaz is in, though he will do that shortly. But here's what's so striking about this moment. I want you to catch this. For those taking notes today, this is our first observation for the day. God enters the darkness in the flesh. God enters the darkness in the flesh. He's talking about light, but you cannot have light. You can't understand how important light is until you don't have it. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9, we see that God's plan will bring hope to those in darkness. So God is recognizing that this is a bleak, a dark time, a time with no hope. And it's fascinating that he talks about this future hope for us because what is he acknowledging? That there's this darkness that we are in as well. And he's talking about this hope, this light that will enter in this darkness. This is why it's relevant for us and not just some kings who are playing, you know, House of the Dragon 700 years ago. Three of you got that. That's okay. That's all right. (laughs) This hope is gonna be for all nations. In verse one, it says, of chapter nine, it says, nevertheless, the gloom, that's the darkness, of the distressed land will not be like that of former times when God didn't bring rescue, when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land used of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. This is what he says. He's talking about us. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness you have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoiced at harvest time and when they rejoice when dividing the spoils. These are like two of the greatest times you can rejoice. You're getting the bounty from all of your hard work is coming in or sometimes you're getting the bounty for something that spoils, it's like spoils of war. Like you didn't even do anything for it. You're just getting the bounty for it. Like this is awesome. Those are the types of feelings he's saying is coming for us. But in the darkest times, spiritually and physically and emotionally, God steps in and offers hope. He says it won't always be like the gloom of the distressed land. That this new thing would be like, like dawning on those living in darkness. And, and this is one of the ways we know that this isn't just for the nation of Israel. That in verse 3 it says the nations enlarged. The Bible in the later part says that we are grafted in to the family of Israel. That we are now sons and daughters of the living God. That family of God has been enlarged. And that includes us. That, that hope is for us. Hope that he would be with us in the most physical way that the Messiah would be born into humanity. Now, this isn't the first time that, that we're told Messiah would be born into humanity. God does that in Genesis 3. This isn't the first surprise baby either. I mean, some of you are surprise babies too, even if your parents don't didn't tell you that. But this is the first time we're told that this is a miraculous birth that can only come about in the way that God would bring it. And that's what he's talking about in Isaiah seven fourteen when he says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign the virgin will conceive have a son and name him Emmanuel. And by putting on flesh by taking on human nature in addition to his God nature Jesus has always existed. He has always been God. What does it say? His name will be called Eternal Father. One God three persons in the Trinity. So Jesus comes he puts on he takes on human nature in addition to his God nature truly human truly God. He becomes the promised Emmanuel, God with us. I love the way the Message Bible translates John chapter one verse fourteen. It says, "The Word became flesh and moved in the neighborhood." But there's something else to consider here: that God doesn't come in the middle of the nation's repentance. Did you catch that? It's not like the nation was going, "Cool, we're going to serve God." Ahaz actually makes the wrong choice. He continues to trust in this other nation instead of God. The king of Israel has completely gone off the rails. He's not even following God at all. God comes in the midst of their disobedience. He gives this promise in the midst of their disobedience, in the midst of their failure to believe. He gives hope and promise and a path to restoration before they've even repented. God enters the darkness and brings the light that offers a way out of their bondage, both to their physical problem and their spiritual problem. For those taking notes today, this is our second observation. Observation. That Jesus meets our physical needs by living in the flesh. See, Jesus didn't just enter humanity looking like a human and hang out for a bit and then take it off like some used suit. But once he took on human nature, he is truly human. He still is. Now, he has a resurrected body, so he's not bound by the same laws. The Bible says he, he like enters into the locked doors. He appears and disappears. It's pretty cool. You'll get to do that, too. It's great. But in taking on this human nature in addition to his God nature, the big Christianese word for that is hypostatic union. And it's the, the, the way we don't understand how those two things could possibly coexist. I have no idea. God does. As long as he knows, that's cool. It's all that really matters. But it means that he is truly human. He's going to be human. It means he's experienced temptation and sorrow and heartache. He's experienced joy and wonder, but he understands our physical need. Look at verses four and five with me again. He says, for you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders. This is weight. He's like, I recognize you're carrying this weight. This is oppressive. This is hard. I recognize you're in this difficult time. And he says he's going to break that, the staff of the oppressor, just as you did in the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloody garments of war are gonna be burned. They're not gonna be there anymore. You're not gonna experience that anymore. And so yes, there is a promise here for future distant hope. But there's also a promise to King Ahaz that the nation would be rescued even though the judgment of God was about to begin. Isaiah 10, 20 to 21 says this, on that day, he's talking about more immediate day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no longer depend on the one who struck them. They're gonna be carried off by the Assyrians and they were their hope of rescue. But he says, someday you're not gonna depend on Assyria you no longer depend on the one who struck you, but they will faithfully depend on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. The remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. And we know this happens. Later, he goes on to say, the exact king that's going to allow them to return. It's incredible what God does, that he promises the return of his people, even though they've been taken. It's amazing to me that even when God holds us accountable for our actions, he always does it in love. I've talked about this before, but... God does not bring guilt and shame. Guilt and shame were nailed to the cross. He does bring conviction, though. Conviction is different. Conviction is, Jared, I have something better for you. Why don't you walk with me in this way? It's so much healthier for your life. It's better. It's a better plan for you. I love you. Walk with me here. This is better. Don't walk there. Guilt and shame says, I can't believe you would do that. What kind of pastor acts that way? What kind of husband acts that way? What kind of father acts that way? What kind of guy does that? And then I'm trying to make up for it by being more repentant, right? I'm trying to earn my salvation through a moralistic gospel. Well, the harder I work, the more then God has to forgive me because he sees how sorry I am. But we already know our salvation and our forgiveness, that God's grace that is given doesn't come because of how hard we work. It has nothing to do with our actions. See, God always, from the beginning, has made sure we didn't have to earn it. He enters our world to bring reconciliation even at the cost of his own son. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16 says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are and is yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in the time Of our need, even as God brings the nation of Assyria to conquer Israel and remove them from their homeland, He is still giving them the plan for restoration. This brings us to our third observation for today: Jesus resolves our spiritual needs by resurrecting in the flesh. So He addresses our physical needs by living in the flesh, but He resolves our spiritual need by resurrecting in the flesh. Jesus. Chose to take on human nature and then submit fully to God, even to the point of death, because he must seek the best interest of and the full glory of God. Again, the Bible is not about it. Some of us thought that God, Jesus came and died just for us. And while we are the the benefactors of Christ's death, he didn't do it for us. He did it to bring glory to the Father. He loves us, but we are not the most important thing. We are not centric to the gospel. Jesus is. If God is the most high, the most perfect, the most right, and the most good, then nothing else could possibly compare to him. So what does God need to value more than anything else? Himself. If God were to value as valuable anything other than himself, he would be saying that that thing is worth more than himself. But he is the most valuable. Now, we get to enjoy his value of himself because it's not selfish. God is the only one that knows how to value himself in a way that is extolling of his goodness and benefits us in the middle of his love john piper says it like this redemption salvation and restoration are not god's ultimate goal these he performs for the sake of something greater namely the enjoyment he has and in glorifying himself if god were not infinitely devoted to the, pers- to the preservation display and enjoyment of his own glory we could have no hope of finding happiness in him God's ultimate goal, therefore, is to preserve and display his infinite and awesome greatness and worth. That is his glory. God would be unrighteous if he valued anything more than what is supremely valuable. But he himself is supremely valuable. If he did not take infinite delight in his worth above his own glory, uh, worth of his own glory, he would be unrighteous. And since Jesus is fully God, his voluntary surrender is to bring God glory and please the Father. And so we are saved for God by God, not saved by God for ourselves. Why does this whole hypostatic union two nature thing matter? Why does it matter that Jesus would take on flesh? There's a whole, um, there's a whole uh, way of belief out there we call heresy, meaning it's, it's not right, that says that Jesus actually wasn't here physically. He just appeared here physically. That, uh, that God just showed up in a physical form but wasn't here physically. And so why does it matter that Jesus takes on flesh? Well, throughout history, there's people that have claimed that God was, again, a human form or wasn't actually human. Or he was not God until he died. And then got elevated him to God whole, Godhead. Or that he's a lesser God to the big father God. All of these things are heresy. They're, they're wrong. They're not true. Those things don't line up about what the Bible says about Jesus. But... If I can explain something here, hopefully this will help in understanding why it's important that Jesus is truly human in addition to being truly God. First, only the person who has been wronged can offer forgiveness for that wrong, okay? Only the person who has been wronged can offer forgiveness for that wrong. Now, let's say Gammer, Gamer, stand up and say hi to everybody back here. <laughs> I know, because you look like you're standing and you're already sitting, like you're, yeah, Okay. I, yeah, there you go. It's going to make sense in a minute. If Gammer beats me mostly to death because Gammer can, <laughs> you're one of the few, bro. You're one of the few. Most people have to sneak up behind me. You, I think you could take me, but it'd be a good fair fight, though. <laughs> <laughs> go for the knees. He says, "That's that, we're we're both old enough that that would matter, sir." Okay, so if Gammer comes up and beats me nearly to death and says sorry. Can Leah forgive him? No. Why? Because Leah's not the one that was offended. I mean, she could have been triggered by the violence. She could have been offended on my behalf, but she's not the one that was wounded. Leah had nothing to do with it except maybe encouraging him on. Because she's on staff. She's like, yeah. But only the person who's been attacked can accept the forgiveness of the attacker. Secondly... Only the one who's an attacker can be forgiven. And so if Gammer comes and beats me and says, sorry, I can't say, well, I forgive Leah. Right? What does that benefit Gammer? It has nothing to do with anything. I can say I forgive her all I want, but because she's not the one that did anything, it really has no effect on Gammer whatsoever. Since we have been treasonous rebels against God, only God can offer forgiveness for our sins. We're the ones that offended him. No one else can give us forgiveness because he is the wounded party. Since humanity is the guilty party, only humanity can pay the price for our sins. No one else can do it for us. So if Jesus isn't truly God, he can't offer forgiveness. But if Jesus isn't truly human, he can't be the one that offers that, dies, and takes that punishment in our place. He has to be truly God and truly Because he has both natures, he can be the perfect forgiveness and the perfect sacrifice and bring us into reconciliation with the Father once and for all. Now, God knew all of this. And so 700 years before Jesus took on a human nature and entered our world, he gives us this promise of a future hope for our darkness. Isaiah 7.14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. That is Jesus. He then tells us this child will be the permanent hope for us in the restoration of the world. Uh, Verse 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David. That's the continuation of the promise in the line of David, that he would be the Messiah to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. But instead of just leaving it as that's the Messiah, he promises one other thing. He shows us something else as he's showing us how human Jesus would be. And that's in chapters 52 and 53. That he would be the suffering servant that would take on our punishment, our consequences on himself as our redeemer. Starting in Isaiah 52, 13. Remember, in the scroll, there was no division between these chapters. And so this portion actually starts in 52, verse 13, and it continues to all of 53. It says, See, my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man and his form did not resemble a human being. When you go to Israel with us, you'll get to see the area they believe that Jesus was beaten beyond recognition. Verse 15, so he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths before, because of him for they will see what, he had, what had not been told them and they will understand what they had not heard. Who has believed what we have heard and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root cut out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him, yet he himself bore our sickness And he carried our pains. But we, in turn, regarded him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he does not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, and like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment and who considered his fate for he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked but he was with the rich man in his death because he had done no violence and not spoken deceitfully. All of this you can see in the life of Jesus. Verse 10, Yet the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days and by his hand the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, He will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will carry their iniquities, that's sin. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion and he will receive the mightiest spoil because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. See, Christmas past has always been about Christmas present and Christmas future. We have been saved, we are being saved, we will be saved. How incredible a God we have That he, by taking on flesh, becomes the fulfillment of that promise for salvation for us. For restoration, for healing. (laughs) By his wounds, we have been healed. That by entering our darkness in the flesh, he becomes our light and hope. By living in the flesh, he becomes the perfect substitute that atones for our sins. And by resurrecting in the flesh, he goes from suffering servant to conquering king. Who brings us into his kingdom as not just citizens, but sons and daughters of the living God. It's incredible. And family, this applies to us, to anybody who wants to apprentice.